Now we don't have any value. Hello everyone and welcome to your Dev Sentence. My name is Eden, as always, and today I am joined by Abraham Josephine Riesman, author of Ringmaster, Vince McMahon, and the Unmaking of America. How are you, Josie? Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. For all the listeners, we had a little chat before this where we found out we have a lot in common. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I'm, I'm a newcomer to friendship with the host of your fine show, but um, I'm really excited about this. Likewise. So I said I don't have an agenda, but then you said you do. Oh, I have an agenda. I got an ag- I got your headline right here for your first okay. podcast, uh, for your for for my first podcast appearance. Um, it is Philip K. Dick, anti semite or just complete weirdo? <laughs> That's a very good question, actually. Just, so yeah. So here, let me let me lay it out for you really quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go so for it. the original plan for this conversation was we were going to talk about. Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle, which I can talk about until the cows come home. I first read it in eighth grade. Uh, I've thought about it my entire life. I reread it a few about a year ago now, devoured it in like two sittings. And, you know, knowing what I know as an adult and as a Jew, it had a whole complete different meaning for me. And then when you said, hey, let's talk about Man in the High Castle, it coincided with me kind of diving back into Dick in a more serious way. I've been reading Dick on and off uh, since eighth grade. Well, really seventh grade when I read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. I haven't read all of his work because Lord knows mm-hmm. very few of us have read everything he's written. Yeah. Uh, very prolific. But Man in the High Castle is something I knew really well. So I was diving into his other stuff, um, specifically his nonfiction, which can you call anything he writes fiction or nonfiction specifically, you know, (laughs) but some of his his essays and letters. Um, Specifically, there's this book that's uh, long out of print, very uh, unfortunately. One sec, I dropped something up. I'm grabbing my book on my messy desk. um, There's this book called The Shifting Realities of Philip K. Dick, Selected Selected Literary and Philosophical Writings. Hmm. I found a .txt file of it online. You can actually Google it and just get the .txt file if you want, but I encourage you to find a copy of it. It might still be in print, but nobody talks about it. And there's this amazing essay in there amazing it was well it's it's a letter to a fanzine let's be real uh from 1964 (laughs) but back in the day you had major creative thinkers writing letters to the editor of fanzines and those letters would spark revolutions you know or or they would be just mind benders that you can ruminate on for days so he wrote a response to some discussion of the man in the high castle and take a set to take a step back for people who don't know about the man in the high castle. It is a novel that posits, it came out in 1962 and it posits an alternate 1962 where the Nazis and the Japanese won world war two. So simple yep. enough. Although at the time this was the first somewhat mainstream breakthrough novel to ever depict an AU in that level of detail. It's not, wasn't the first alternate history, but it was the first one to be, a, a mild sensation and kind of normalize that outside of outre sci-fi or historians just wanking off in, you know, theoretical exercises. So he makes this beautifully depicted, richly imagined 
uh, image of the Rocky Mountains and uh, the Bay Area mm -hmm. in this alternate 1962, where the Japanese control the eastern part of the United States, the Nazis control the uh, sorry the the western part, the Japanese control the Nazis control the eastern half, and in the middle there's sort of this buffer zone that both parties find it advantageous to have and manipulate. And we follow a few characters as they go through this world. Now, I can get into the details of the plot and why it's interesting later, but one of the things that really struck me in my reread was there's this one main character, Frank Frank, mm -hmm. uh, who used to be Frank Fink, but changed his name because he's one of the few surviving Jews in America. And when I read this book as a child, I had become bar mitzvah. You know, I'd had a Jewish education, but no offense. I hope nobody who was teaching me when I was a kid is listening to this right now. But highly unlikely, highly unlikely. My Jewish Hebrew school education was paltry. It was not good. I did not really get any kind of sense of what it means to be Jewish at some kind of conceptual or at least even visceral level. So Frank Frank just read to me like, sure, he's a Jew, whatever. I don't even know what a Jew is. I guess I'm one. You know, but reading it now with more Jewish consciousness, uh, perhaps Jewish obsession and Jewish narcissism, I was reading Frank and going, Philke Dick has no idea what Jews are like. Oh, like, yeah. This, this is just a white guy who yeah. he occasionally has think in Yiddishisms that are really basic, where it'll be like, Oy vey, thought, uh, thought Frank as he was wondering <laughs> what to do. You know, it was just this very flat and generic depiction of what it would mean to be one of the last Jews living in America. Like that yeah. is one of the most interesting plot setups you could possibly think of for a character. And he just doesn't do anything with it. So I still loved the novel, but I was really wondering like, what did, what did PKD think of Jews? Like what, what were Jews in his, his universe? So that was on my mind for a few months. And then when I was um, diving back in and reading these nonfiction writings, I found this 1964 letter to uh what was the name of the magazine it was uh it was one of the big fanzines it was niekas n-i-e-k-s k-a-s and it's called nazism and the high castle i'm not going to read the whole thing because i'm not andy kaufman reading Great gatsby <laughs> live but let me just give you some of the wonderful highlights so basically i'll actually just summarize first and then i can read you some fun highlights yeah. Basically, he blames he he's trying to address the question that has been brought up in this fanzine about his novel, which is why did the Nazis do what they did? Why were the Nazis genocidaires? Was it because of something uniquely German? Was it because there were good Germans and bad Germans and all the good Germans got killed or exiled? Like there's all of this sort of political discussion that's very mid-century sci-fi writer fanzine where they're just sort of arguing about like, okay, so why do you think, you know, was it because they were afraid of the communists, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so Dick tries to sort of settle the argument once and for all and absolutely doesn't. It is the least satisfying explanation of Nazism you could possibly imagine. He reduces it to um, phobia. Why do some people fear cats or streetcars or redheaded goats? They, do, they themselves do not know. Phobia is phobia. It springs, as Freud and Jung and H.S. Sullivan showed, from depths of the self unknown to the self. Ipse dixit. But the point is, like, no, it wasn't just a <laughs> phobia of Jews. There's there's a lot of factors at play. So as soon as I got to that part, I was like, all right, my hackles are a little raised here. 
But boy, was I not ready for where it went next. Because here is the most amazing thing I learned about Philip K. Dick in recent months. Philip K. Dick was, although not like a political activist, in his ideology, an ardent and very specific anti-Zionist. I'm going to yep. read you a I'm going to read you a little passage here. Yeah. The Zionists drove 1 million Arabs out of Israel, and those Arabs supported, i.e., kept from starving by the Quakers, are the greatest single lot of displaced persons on earth today. And don't let anyone tell you that those Arabs, i.e., non-Jews and hence aliens, although their people had lived there for 2000 years, wanted to leave. They were terrorized into leaving and they cannot return. And here we go. So the victims of World War II have become the arrogant nationalists oh, ready wow. to go to war, vide the Suez crisis, with their neighbors as soon as assured of adequate military support. This is all dreadful. And then he goes in literally the next sentence in the, in the Jewish refugee settlements in the Far East under the Japanese during World War II, many Jews set up Hitler organizations including the Nazi or Roman, if you prefer, salute. I could keep going, but this guy <laughs> was an anti-Semite. Like, and I'm not saying that because he was an anti-Zionist. I, I, yeah. I have a lot of respect for a lot of anti-Zionists, and I don't know what I consider myself just because I try not to position myself around Zionism and centering it. But the point is, Dick really was against Zionism and against the Nakba, but at the same time, his motivation for it, when you read into other things like Vallis, his semi-autobiographical novel about his experiences after having a religious revelation, yep. you know, he writes about having a uh, having an American Jewish therapist. I don't have this one right open in front of me. American Jewish therapist. I think his name is Maurice. The character is uh, has this therapist and Maurice went off to fight in uh, the I believe it was the six day war that they're implying killed a bunch of Syrians. And he describes this one therapy session with Maurice that is so anti-Semitic, where he just has like Maurice going like the truth is in the in the book of Genesis. Just read the Torah. And this is meant to be like, well, obviously, the Torah is not going to have the answers to real religious revelation. It's just a bunch of like dumb rules and stories like there is such a real latent anti-Semitism that sometimes becomes open in dick and yet i still love him it's like hp lovecraft you know yeah, like what I, are you supposed to do i'm gonna stop talking now but that's that was the no, top no, all line. Good. no this is fascinating i mean i read valis and high castle when i was much younger and i guess i just like instinctively shuck off anti-semitism in science fiction because so many of these oh, so many of them were <laughs> yes exactly kind of like my um my instinct as a Jewish person is just to like ignore it and, and read on because otherwise I wouldn't be able to read like 90% of golden era science fiction. But I think it's also really fascinating because just like another uh, quirk of his biography, he was married to a Jewish woman. Right. Uh, which is, which I think is, is really fascinating. And uh, Rubenstein um, later, it's... of course, and, and our Dick. Um, right. And, and she also influenced his uh, Juliana, the wife of the um, Jewish character in uh, the Men in, in the High, High Castle. Castle. Correct. Yeah. I'm, I, before you go any further, I'm going to warn you. I may have sounded like a big authority there when I went on my big rant. I have <laughs> so much more to learn about 
uh, dick. So I am re- uh, no pun intended. In fact, let's just for for here on out. Yeah, just no imagine. puns intended no puns when intended. we say dick. Yeah. But yes, uh, so please educate me. I did know that his third wife was Jewish, and I should yeah. add that this this essay was from '64 before he was married to her, and he went through a lot of changes. But Vallis is still pretty late, and he's still writing oh, the Jewish therapist that way. Actually, actually, they were they were married in 1959. Oh, were they? Oh, and I they, thought it was. Oh, Wow. Wait, wait, that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is that they got divorced one year after that article in 1965. <gasps> no. <laughs> so that wow. might have been like, yeah. This is, so, I, for some reason, I thought that when I was reading that essay, I was like, I know one of his, his late wife, later wives was, I assumed it was later. Wow, the guy really went through relationships like like nothing. But um, Yeah, I mean, he was a very hard person to be around even ooh, before yeah. his religious um, revelation or uh you know ment- mental illness um crisis totally. as you might call it he was still a very um tough person to get along with even later in life like a lot of his children also said oh, that yeah. it was a very fraught um relationship yeah, and so on. it's really sad but you know and part of that is when i was reading Vallis and then reading that essay um i had this thought which was i just felt sad for philip k dick yeah, that he didn't have any trans Jewish friends because mm. I feel like there is so much in Vallis, and I'm not done with the full trilogy. You know, I haven't yeah. done Divine Invasion or Trans, you know, Timothy Transfiguration. Archer. Yeah. I know I was stumbling over it, so I just skipped to tr- Timothy oh, Archer. Good, okay. But you know what I mean. Um, I haven't read all of it, and I certainly haven't read my big fat copy of the Exegesis, the one that was that came out a couple. You know, I have a huge hardcover copy. Yeah, I have of the it. huge hardcover too, and I just yeah. I I got it when it came out, and was like, someday I'll be ready for this, and someday I will. But um, but the the thing I kept thinking was like, I put it in a very a pithy tweet uh, that I won't try to sum it up now, but it's basically like after Philip K. Dick has his uh, unexplainable experience, mm-hmm. um. He spends years trying to figure out what it was. Yeah. And when he's writing, at least at the stage of Vallis that I'm in, I know he gets to higher levels of understanding or at least bigger questions. But it's so interesting that he's like, wait a minute. What if we're all trapped in prisons of identity that a forceful, uh, you know, human tendency slash outside force of government and uh, policing tries to keep us in trapped inside? And yeah, he what thought... If- he, I know, and I'm like, he, yeah, yeah, that's being trans. That's gen- that's gender. <laughs> like that wouldn't have been a huge revelation to somebody who has lived a subaltern life or a hidden life. It's almost kind of a shame that that revelation went to like a cis straight white man. <laughs> I'm not saying also... that as it, I'm not saying that to dis dick. It's just I wonder what somebody with that information would have done. done. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a fascinating question. I think it's also kind of disappointing to uh, read about the personality that Dick thought he was actually. He thought he was uh, Timothy, um, a first yeah. century priest um, yeah. in, in, in Roman prison, in Rome, which is like, no. <laughs> it's such a weird like, and, and specific alter ego to kind no, of but, develop but for yourself. I, I get it. Here's the thing. I get it. Here's why. I... Like right before I transitioned, I guess I haven't even said this on the, the the podcast. I'm trans. And right before I transitioned, the last fiction I read that deeply moved me, and it was like a couple of weeks before transition that I finished the second book in this series, was this out-of-print saga, historical fiction, 
by a German Jew named Leon Fuchtwanger. It's this trilogy of novels about Flavius Josephus, the first century yeah. Jewish philosopher. And not not just philosopher, historian, really. Historian and I would say the first Jewish journalist because he witnessed the war uh, the, the, that destroyed the temple and then wrote a chronicle of it yep. um, in his own time. But the point is, I was reading this Josephus stuff and going, oh, I'm Josephus. This mm, is me. Interesting. Like, there's something very pregnant in the human imagination, or at least the Western imagination. Once you've been turned on to the fact of what the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was, it's so hard to get your mind off of it as both yeah. metaphor and as historical turning point. And I, I, I don't blame him for, for fantasizing about being in the aftermath of that apocalypse, the during and after of that apocalypse, because that's how little... I feel about Josephus. Cause that's right. Yeah. That's, that's what it's like to be, a late 20th into the early 21st century subject. You are living post-apocalyptically. We already had World War II, Nazis and the Holocaust. And guess what? Life may have improved a little bit for a little while for some people, but, and this gets us back to the man in the high castle, no matter what, those energies were loosed into the world. Those ideas can't be put back in the bottle. And mm -hmm. even if, you know, our Nazis lost... Uh, or rather, even if like their Nazis lost, our Nazis won. You know, it's it's just it's a very I could keep going. I don't think of this as a grim or nihilistic worldview, actually. I just think that it acknowledges a lot of the horrors of the truth. Yeah, I think in general, like the historical education that and I say we with air quotes, right? But in the West, quote unquote, about the um, Holocaust and World War Two is like this is over. Right? We're, right, we're studying things that have ended, and right. it very much is not like you cannot understand um, Europe, Israel, the U.S., and so on um, without thinking about these processes as things that didn't end in forty-five. Yes. Like the armistice does not just like take a, a pair of like huge abstract scissors and just slice all these processes in the middle. No, they transformed, and I think absolutely, absolutely, yeah. the world continues to exist. And the ideas that have been placed into that ecosystem continue to exist. And yeah. it's very hard to stamp out uh, a highly contagious and highly lethal idea. You know, you can do your best, but it's it's like any number of epidemics that are, you know, of epidemic diseases that are coming back because people aren't getting vaccinated. It's like, you can do your best to contain these things, but once they've been created, you have to be ever vigilant about them. You can't ever say they're over. You just say they're currently contained, you know? Yeah. So I think you mentioned um, viruses and, and the pandemic. And one of the interesting and also maybe um, telling about his politics and how um, Dick thought about these things is that he gives Hitler syphilis. Um, in the Man in the High Castle. That's a very good point. He which does. I think is very interesting because, first of all, we know that Hitler, uh, Hitler, damn, we know that Dick, sorry, not Hitler, was yeah. well read in, in philosophy and he liked mm -hmm. Nietzsche. Um, so giving Hitler uh, syphilis, which is um, a disease that in philosophy is associated with Nietzsche's demise, I think is very interesting. Correct. That and is like, interesting. Yeah. That's a good close read of that. Yeah. And it also, it's something associated with Nietzsche, 
but it's also something that more broadly outside of the philosophical community is just mm. associated with kind of moral degeneracy. Yep. And I think that's that's the the Man in the High Castle is a novel that's better than its author intended it to be, I think. Mm. Um, you know, it's one of these classic examples of not the death of the author, but the fact that works exist in tension between author and audience. Yeah. And more importantly, author and context. Um, you know, you know, you can write something in one context, and even if you have uh the intentions of the author well documented, if the context changes, the art changes. So the point is, um, in The Man in the High Castle, you, wait, oh God, now I totally got off tan I went on that tangent and I where I was disclaiming myself and I forgot what I was talking about. What was the thing we just said? <laughs> we talked about Hitler and Nietzsche. And Hitler, syphilis. right? Moral degeneracy, right? Yeah, That's yeah, yeah, yeah. the thing. He he has this. He has this image of the Nazis as, um, uh, you know, in the book, in the novel, you have a lot of descriptions of the Nazis as like cavemen who discovered rocket ships, you yeah. know. And what's weird is in that, you know, in the essay uh, that I was quoting from, he kind of tries to humanize the Nazis and say like, well, a lot of them felt bad about what was going on. They were just sort of going along with what was happening. And I feel like he doesn't really have a clear theory for himself about whether we are Nazis or not, you know, whether the, or not, we are Nazis, but like whether we as the reader are guilty of the same kinds of things that could, you know, overcome a Nazi. Um, and I think that's, it's a flaw in his thought, but if we take the novel on its own, I think the novel is actually pretty firm in its, you know, repetition of that old, you know, French adage, which was like, there were plenty of good Germans and they all got killed, you know, or they left yeah. the country. Like he has this idea that the remnants of a society that weeds out those who are empathic are always that the remnants are always going to be those cavemen with rocket ships. That seems to be what the novel is saying, even if he has like kind of a weird muddled view about it. Um, but, you know, the thing that I, I one thing I always compare Man in the High Castle to recently is uh, I think a perfect companion piece is uh, Deutsches Requiem by mm. Jorge Luis Borges, which is this yeah famous uh, because it was a, a very vivid depiction of a Nazi mentality in like 1949. And it mentions Jews specifically. And that was still at a time when the nature of the Holocaust was not, uh, well, A, we hadn't really started talking about it, and B, Nazi mass death had not been sort of fixated in the popular imagination on Jews. But not Deutsches Requiem makes the point that I think the novel makes, which is, you know, you have Deutsches Requiem is like the last words of this Nazi who's about to be executed after the war. And, you know, he's... He's, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. Sorry. This is so exciting getting to talk about this. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, those I don't like... usually get to riff like this. So I'm like yeah, kind of sure. in my giddy ADHD mode. But both, 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 what Deutsches Requiem says is like, we may have lost the war, but our ideology won. You know, we are willing sacrifices. We, the Nazis, are going to die happily. This is, of course, an exaggeration, but it's it's trying to embody the ideology in its platonic form. We are happy to die on the altar of making sure that Nazi-style thought 
wins. And yeah, the thing uh, is, that's what happens in the Man in the High Castle too. You know, the, the Nazis win in the Man in the High Castle, but you are forced to take a look at your own world and go, yeah, I guess it's better than it would have been in some ways if the Nazis hadn't won. But if you take a real global view, I don't know. We Those ideologies are still very much there. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating comparison for, for a few reasons. One, Deutsches Requiem, one of the most interesting things about it is that it was actually originally published in 1946. Shit, so really? I, like, I the edition I have talks about it being in the book yeah. from 49. Wow! So it's in El Aleph, which is in 1949, which is a collection where it was reprinted. Right, right. right. 46 is when it was published. And 46 is like, what is it? It's like a month. Uh, uh, I'm exaggerating, of course. It's like right, it's so like close a to... Think, think about 2020 for us. That would yeah. that still feels like it was yesterday, and that exactly. was much farther ago. Exactly. And then the second thing is is that um, uh, what's his name, the protagonist Zulinde, um, the the one of the last quotes that that he says, speaking about exactly what you mentioned, which is like the survival of the ideology, is um, let heaven exist, though our place be in hell. Yes, which I think is really interesting, and actually does I think a better job than the Man in the High Castle of capturing possible well lack of regret, right? Like, yeah. but personal regret, like I'm gonna die, and maybe that I messed up, and I shouldn't have done all these things. But the ideology is pure and will survive me. And in the High Castle, like Dick tries to um, show this regret for the German protagonist, right? Uh, Wegener, I guess you would you'd pronounce his last name. Yeah, um, yeah, the guy who goes by Bayes when he's uh, exactly yeah he's the Swede. Yeah, yeah, he's the regretful one who wants to prevent even greater catastrophe. Exactly. In general, I think to go back to your point about the death of the author and like a uh, uh, literary work existing between the writer and the reader, Philip K. Dick in general requires the reader to give him a lot of breaks, I feel, and also to yes. complete thoughts for him. What I love about yes. Dick, and he's like my second favorite author um, after also Le Guin. Um, there's a connection. That's a, though, that's a very good choice, those top two. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. I knew we had something in common. And anyway, we keep going. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So, so for, for Dick, it's like he doesn't finish his ideas because he's in a fever. Yes. He, he's yes. constantly like, if he stops to think about these things, he moves on to the next idea. So he just spills mm -hmm. them on the page. So, mm -hmm. so, so much of it is like half, it's like sketches, right? He's like yes. sketching, but his mind was so, for lack of a better word, fucked up that yeah. his sketches are fascinating. Oh, right? absolutely. He's this incredibly controlled master of the English language who also is like basically an outsider artist by some definitions, you know? Yeah. Like there, there are ways in how outsider art, of course, is a term that's notoriously hard to define and very delicate to describe. But if you think of outsider art as something where somebody is creating art out of mental illness and it might just be a manifestation of the illness, as opposed to an interrogation of the illness then you get into dicey waters, you know, then Dick starts to at least late stage Dick certainly starts to sound like that. But then late stage Dick makes you question early stage Dick because he starts going, oh, you know, after he has the revelation, he says, yeah, the man in the high castle was one of those first transmissions and I didn't know it. You yeah. Know? And the weird thing is, like, if that were true, it kind of adds up. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a religious person. When I say I'm a religious person, I mean, I think rituals and texts and uh, communal activities 
are essential for keeping society coherent and for moral instruction. I, I I just don't believe that you can have an individualist morality or even come up with morality as an individual. I think it needs to be done communally through ritual and through recognition that there are things bigger than the human individual or even the human collective. There are things that are bigger than us. So, you know, there are a lot of people who say they're spiritual, not religious. I don't trust them. <laughs> that means you're just operating with your own personal thing and you're not bothering to commune with others. That's one of the things I love about Judaism and the concept of the minion, you know, and um, I don't even remember where I was going with that, but, uh, oh, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Philip K. Dick. You know, that's one of the things that I think makes me sad about Philip K. Dick is that the religious traditions that he was born into and, you know, he moved around within the Christian framework. But like, ultimately, even when he's talking about Gnostic Christianity, he can't break away from this kind of individualistic savior mode, which I just don't think is that great a way to run society you know he becomes a victim of the of the very question he'd been toying with his entire career maybe not his entire career i haven't read every book but throughout much of his career which was what if the future ends up being everybody choosing their own reality or having a false reality imposed upon them and then just taking drugs to get through the day you Mm -hmm. know that was philip k dick's you know, version of Orwell's, you know, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. His vision was imagine a bunch of people doing drugs to survive the fact that they don't know what's real anymore. And you mean, you mean us, us all that's (laughs) that's what happened. He was exactly right about where that was going. And this is why I, I love Dick because he said, you know what? The old ways have something to teach us. And there was wisdom that we have cast aside in this age of individual judgment of like, well, if it doesn't seem like if it's not fun to read, it must not be important. Or if nobody recommended it to me in my, you know, online, then I shouldn't read it. You know, he he really believed that the ancients, uh, you know, I use that term broadly, had something to teach. And I believe that, too. But I come at it from a Jewish perspective. And my Jewish perspective is the ancients have something to teach about how we Frickin' survive as communities, how we make civilizations that can endure the apocalypse. And I just don't think Dick saw religion in that way. He kept thinking about it as though, like, I mean, this is this is the thing that always makes me the saddest about Dick, but also makes me kind of want to hold him in my arms and say, it's okay, baby. Yeah. It that he could not escape from the idea that there is some kind of Christ figure mm-hmm. who wants what's best for us. He was Descartes. He was Descartes because Descartes famous, you know, wall that he hit was maybe the world is an in, the, he's he gets to the world might be a deception. And then Descartes backs off. I can't remember the French or the Latin, but he says, God is no deceiver. Yeah. Neither man could come to accept that there might actually be no force for good other than humanity. And I think that's also what drove him to write about the Nazis, right? One of yes, the questions that very good point. Yeah, I think one of the questions that bothered um, Philip mostly in his later career, if you read um, Galactic Pot Healer, which is like his exploration of Freud and and Jung, um, one of the things that he struggles with is the classic question of evil, 
right? Like if yes. God exists, then why is why? there evil? It's the Odyssey question. It's the ultimate question. Yeah. And then what better culturally, right? Like what better example of evil is there to use than the Nazis, which are considered, sure. you know, in the in in well, today it might be eroding a bit, right? Because of the resurgence yeah, of the yeah, ideology. A lot of right? people are pretty happy about the Nazis. But for a yeah. long time in mother culture, Nazis were held up as the the pH sample that was most acidic. <laughs> it was a slow. It was a slow, right? Like a calling slur, some, right? Yeah, calling someone a Nazi was like, um, what's the one looking for? Exiling him past the discourse, right? Like saying, yes. you all, I cannot talk to you. Now, in our circles, that's still what it means. In other circles, not so much anymore, uh, unfortunately. Um, but I think that's what like uh, Dick was, was grappling with and trying to explain. And to be clear, I think he did a good job of maybe laying out the question, but his answer is not good <laughs> but no, the question is very no it's not a great an- sorry keep going keep going no no no. i, I was done yeah oh yeah i mean it's it, he in many ways philip k dick was kilgore trout you know was von yeah. gets kilgore trout, where it's like unbelievably brilliant ideas that you just kind of can't even believe a a person came up with, especially once you learn the history of SF and figure out all the things that Dick was doing before they became commonplace. And many many cases because of him, they did become commonplace, you know, but oftentimes those ideas are not carried to, um, I think, you know, maybe this is me sounding like, you know, focus on the family or something, but I feel like a lot of times he's building towards a moral question and a moral answer. And he just is too much. Maybe it's because he was too much of a skeptic, even of himself, but he can never quite come around to saying, you know what? There's a reason to live. You know, it was always look at how effed up everything is. And what if it was even more effed up? And I think that stuff is so valuable. And again, I haven't read all of his books. There may well be novels he's written where there is sort of, some degree of philosophical hope. But the irony is like he had hope. I was watching that that famous, well, it, within Dick circles, lecture he gave in 1977 in France, yeah. right mm-hmm. when I was getting into all this, I watched this lecture and the ending is so beautiful throughout, but especially at the ending, it's beautiful. He's like, we're going to be okay. It doesn't turn out bad in the end because God doesn't, the real God he doesn't say God, but, you know, the real master controller, whatever he's saying, doesn't want us to be unhappy. And I just feel like that's an insufficient happy ending. It's it's a literal deus ex machina. And I think that was the deus ex machina he had to choose for his life because all of his writing lacked deus ex machina where there was uh, a happy resolution. People at best are sort of like, OK, I guess life will go on. You know, <laughs> yeah. and I'm not saying he should have been cheerier. I'm saying his work served a really important purpose, but I think it needs to be built upon and has been built upon by a lot of other people in order for it to be a coherent moral philosophy. I think that is exceptionally interesting. And and the question in general of like a, a happy ending and, and where we go from here and like, because so, on the face of it, Philip K. Dick's story is 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 tragic, right? They're all um, tragedies. Yeah. Yeah. His books. Oh, his, his story, his own story. Yeah. 
Yes, also, also very gets. tragic. But as yes, someone, yeah. as someone who's read like ninety-seven percent of all of his fiction, um, I can tell you that none of them have hope. <laughs> they, they I was about to say like, none of the ones I've read have any hope at the end. No, you know, it's, my favorite is the closest of, of, to that is the end of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, where the wife pours herself a cup of coffee and feels yeah. a little better than she did the minute before. I remember yeah. reading that and being like, "Wow." That's uh, that's your happy that's, ending. <laughs> that's that's the best that it gets. Um, but yeah, then I know, also I know. For his biography, right? Like he died um in 1982, right which is exactly right before Blade Runner, right before he became Hollywood's science fiction author. Right, yeah. like Philip K. Yeah. Dick is which the he, most. He, yep. Yeah, he, he is the author with the most novels. Um. Made and for short the, stories. For the and short stories. And yeah. short stories. Yeah, hundred percent. Which is really interesting because a lot of the people who love some of those films don't know that they're based on Philip Undead. K. Dick's nope. Uh, nope. stories. No, it is a goddamn shame. It. Re- this is like this has been my. Ho- I, I'm sure a lot of your readers have no idea. Your listeners have no idea who I am. But I, my hobby horse for the past decade has been creator credit and getting laborers who do creative mm. laborer. Who do, who do creative labor to be recognized as the progenitors of the stuff that makes a lot of other people a lot of money. You know, I did this primarily in the world of, excuse me, in the world of comic books. You know, I was on staff at New York Magazine and working primarily for their culture and arts section. Um, and I just wrote, I can't even think how many articles where in retrospect, I look back on them and some of them don't really have a thesis beyond attention must be paid. But I felt so urgently that attention must be paid that that powered those articles into, I think, sometimes being really good. But me beside, I just, it drives me nuts that people like Philip K. Dick are the ones who dream these dreams. And then when the dreams become the dreams of others, the only person who gets the credit is the brand or the star or maybe the director, you know? Yeah, I think it's it's super interesting. Um, I'm also a big uh, comic books guy, but like as a consumer, right, as a reader. And sure. there are interesting parallels into things that I focused on when I was doing my BA, which is um, some of the stuff that I was focused on was the people who you know, the people who did the early scientific experiments for the famous scientists whose names we know. Right, like there were people there taking measurements. Oh yeah, and um, oh, yeah. Was oftentimes, really... oftentimes people of color or women, people, yep. yeah. And there's also interesting stories about, um, you know, famous philosophers. For example, uh, Montesquieu had a scribe who stole one of his manuscripts um, and tried to sell it as his own. But that's mm-hmm. the only time we hear about the scribe who's writing uh, Montesquieu's, uh, um, you know, moral philosophy. And if, if you think that they all they did was copy or yeah, like I, be dictated. You're, you're like, sadly mistaken if you exactly. think it was just copying. Yeah. No, so, totally. This is one of the reasons why I'm very open in every interview I do. <clears throat> Excuse me. About <laughs> the fact that um, I, sorry, in classic Philip K. Dick fashion, I've been vaping yeah. marijuana this whole uh, ah. I might be coughing at times. But um, I always make sure to shout out my editor slash spouse, uh, S.I. Rosenbaum, who I love, but also who is a professional editor of many years vintage and who was a huge influence on my book. I wrote the book, but like 
there that book would look very different without her and it's not exactly the same as creator credit because you know editors don't always get credit and sometimes editors don't even want credit <laughs> but i do think we live in a society i can't believe i just said that phrase we live in a society where <laughs> people just don't care who made the stuff um on an individual granular level you know well, this is I why think... i wrote it one of the reasons i wrote a biography of stan lee that was my first book was yeah. when people think of marvel they want to reduce it in their heads, whether they know it or not, down to Marvel. Oh, Stan Lee created all that. Okay, great. I solved the problem for myself. I now know exactly the author of that. Similarly with Apple, you go like, Apple? Okay, well, until he died, all of that was Steve Jobs. And of course, yeah. it's never that way. It's never that way. But people want the simple answers of who's in charge. So tying it back to Philip K. Dick, I think yes, all of this... Yeah, get back to the dick. So all of this stems from this romantic and i mean the romantic period right perception of how creativity works which is the lone genius in the tower struck by lightning yes, and yes. receiving divine inspiration well if you ask people who actually write that's not how it works at all but no. let's talk about philip k dick and his pink beam right pink which beam. Can, Two, the pink three. beam right? yes march so what do you what do you march. make of that like encounter or, or episode oh, How does i'm not that... enough I, I will i will theorize but i want to preface by saying i have not read the full exegesis i have mm. not even finished the valis trilogy i'm inclined to think that there's no way we're ever gonna know what what it was yeah um i'm inclined to you know this was one of the points i tried to make with the stan lee biography was we have to live and thrive even in a world of maddening ambiguity, you know, the the ambiguity for Stan was twofold. One, there's the moral ambiguity of did what was Stan a good or a bad person, which I leave to the reader to decide, because I certainly don't have an answer to that. Um, but the bigger one is the infuriating f factual ambiguity of the fact that we're probably never going to know who invented the Marvel characters. You know, there just was not documentation and documentation is all we can trust because other than that, we're going on two people's words, Stan and Jack. That is it. And they have mutually contradictory stories. <laughs> and I tend to lean towards thinking Jack probably was telling more of the truth, but I can't prove that. And so I don't try to because it's not going to be known. And I think when it comes to the pink beam of light that you know, came to Philip K. Dick when it comes to the little, you know, fish necklace he saw on that door to door uh, person that is uh, who knocked knocked that one day. Um, all I can think is. It's not about what it really was. It's about the beauty of how he tried to figure the, the agonizing beauty of how he tried to figure out what it was, because here's the thing, you know, I. I sometimes say that like in California mysticism, there are two forces. Okay. There's two forces. You can, you can nickname them the PKD force and the LRH force. I won't, for fear of retaliation, I won't tell you what LRH stands for, but maybe you can figure it out. The PKD force preaches that you are going to be skeptical forever. And no matter, even if you have something as amazing and transcendent, as a theophany, as like a revelation where you are pretty goddamn sure that God 
revealed the something past the veil. Even when you have a theophany, you are obligated to spend the rest of your life trying to figure out whether that was just a drug-induced psychosis or maybe somebody playing a trick on you. You know, you are obligated to be skeptical forever about the mystical things that occur to you and try to analyze them and make them into beauty. And the LRH force is the one that says, believe, trust. You know, when something mystical happens to you, join, be a part of it. And the less questions, the better, because the magic for this kind of mysticism comes in losing yourself and letting rationality go to the wayside, you know? And I get that. This isn't even me like dissing anyone. It's just those are two forces that can be really powerful when you have had some kind of experience that you can't explain. Either you want to submit yourself to it or you undertake the agonizing task of trying to dismantle it and figure out what the hell it was. I very much agree. And I think we could talk about this for like five hours more. I know, I know. I feel like we've been talking for a long time. I don't know how long this podcast even is. What, when I mean, are we wrapping there's up? No, yeah, there's no um, limit to the podcast itself, but I have to go to dinner with my wife, which is more important. Hey, I get uh, but, it. I'm but, not getting but, in the but, way of that. I was gonna say I was gonna say Kierkegaard. I was gonna say Adorno. I was gonna say a bunch of stuff. And There's so much. I'm not the wrestling person on the podcast, but Gareth is. So we're gonna have Ooh. to have you back to talk about Please. wrestling. I, I, this was one of the most. I, I'm I'm not kidding. This was the most delightful conversation I've had on this press tour because I got to talk about all the stuff that I've been thinking about since the book. This is every author will tell you the weirdest part about doing a book tour is the books take so long to go from soup to nuts that by the time you're promoting it, you are mm. so on to the oh. next set of things. <laughs> you're over it. You're. O- I'm not even over it. It's just, I'm more excited to talk about these things. And we didn't even talk about my next book, which I will just tease by saying it's yeah. going to be a biographical sketch of the musician Beck, but it's going to be heavily influenced by Philip K. Dick. I will, wow, I'm hoping wow. it'll be a Philip, like a nonfiction Philip K. Dick book. So, so um, we're going to have to have you on because Langdon, the other co-host is a huge Beck fan. So uh, this is a, uh, this is beshared. Okay. We were, we were meant to be podcast buds. So yeah, have me back on anytime, please. Thank you so much for your time and uh, we'll be in touch and uh, schedule the next one. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Hey everyone. Here's what happened. I was having such a good time talking to Josie and my mind was buzzing with everything that we had discussed and everything that I still wanted to say that I forgot to put music at the end of the episode. And so here I am recording this a few days after my conversation with Josie um, to tell you about the music that we're just about to listen to. I was thinking a lot about what kind of track I wanted to put after such a conversation about Philip K. Dick and religion and belief and history and and drugs and and mental illnesses and everything that we discussed. And it suddenly came to me today um, in the form of Canaan's um, new album. Canaan, of course, being the name for biblical Israel, which also ties into a lot of the conversations about Judaism that I had with Josie. Um, Canaan is a Norwegian um, psychedelic rock trio. And if you're familiar with psychedelic rock, you know that Norway, Sweden, Finland, and so on have some of the best um, psychedelic rock currently being made. And it's not that different with Knan, an amazing band who has been releasing a lot of albums in the past few years, ever since 2018 when they released Windborne, which is still one of my favorite releases in this space. The 2021 album Earthbound is also really, really good. 
And this year, in May, they are going to be releasing Downpour, from which this track comes to us. I'm going to play you Orbit, which is the fifth track from the album and one of my favorites. And it should put you on or rather gel with the mindset that you'll already be on um, after our discussion of Philip K. Dick. So try to think about, we didn't get into this in the episode, but of course, Philip had a lot of connection with music, music um, prefigures in a lot of his books, including in The Men in the High Castle. And of course, he was creating these works when stoner, psychedelic, progressive rock was having its heyday. And I'm sure he would appreciate what Knan are doing on Downpour. Thank you so, so much for listening. And as we said during the episode, Josie will be back to talk to us about anything else we can get her to talk about. Um, and for now, here is Knan with Orbit. Enjoy. <laughs> 